Today on episode 21 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we're going to discuss a Supreme Court decision that just came down, which finally clears up how to deal with mixed causes of action and adds a scalpel to anti-slap motions. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One of from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Another amazing trial victory at Morrison Stone with some entertaining moments. Stick around for the after show and I'll tell you about it. Welcome to the 21st episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. Now you could be listening to Spotify, Apple Music, Napster, Google Play Music, Amazon Music, Pandora, Audible, or any other podcast to name a few, but you chose to listen to my humble effort and I thank you for that. Of course, now, later when I check my stats, I'll see that everyone tuned out in the first 30 seconds because they realized, hey, I could be listening to Spotify. My name is Aaron Morris. I am a partner with the boutique law firm of Morris & Stone, located at the corner of 17th and Prospect in the beautiful city of Tustin, but serving all of California. Our primary practice areas are free speech and defamation, and of course, anti slap law. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm, the top law firm. And I never remember to tell you to follow me on Twitter at Aaron Morris-esk, E-S-Q, Aaron Morris-esk. I'm not a big fan of the use of Esquire, but some other Aaron Morris grabbed up that Twitter handle, so Aaron Morris-esk was an obvious choice. Now, defamation is a big part of our practice, and we deal with a lot of false reviews posted on Yelp. People say to me, well, what are you doing going after people who post their opinions on Yelp? People are entitled to their opinions. Well, the answer is we don't. We'll fight to the death your right of free speech to post your opinion on Yelp, or at least until we get a nasty paper cut. What we go after is the fake reviews that are posted by competitors or by someone who provides verifiably false information about a business. And there are big doings in the world of online reviews. The conventional wisdom had always been that you can't get a takedown order against Yelp, for example, because of the Communications Decency Act. The defamation victim can't sue Yelp directly, so if Yelp is not a party, how can it be ordered to take down a defamatory post? Now we have a court of appeal opinion in the case of Hassel versus Bird, which held that Yelp can be ordered to take down a defamatory post as a part of ordering the defamer to take down that post. Now, Yelp cried foul to the trial court's decision, arguing that it cannot be ordered to do something if it is not a party to the action. But the Court of Appeal pointed out that including third parties in orders is commonplace if necessary to effectuate the order. So if you have a client who needs a false review removed from Yelp, have them give us a call. This authority may not last long. Yelp has petitioned the Supreme Court for review. I think Yelp may be setting up a scenario it won't be happy with if the Supreme Court does take the matter up, but we'll have to wait and see. Now for a quick plug, I've told you about the Bench Reporter Service, which makes available to you all of the tentative rulings from the following superior courts. Los Angeles County, Orange County, San Diego County, San Francisco County, Santa Clara County, Contra Costa County, and Sacramento County. Being able to look at how your particular judge rules on particular motions is huge in preparing your motion or opposition and for oral argument. Well, I twisted their arms a little and I got the fine people at Bench Reporter to let you try out the service for a buck. A buck. A single, solitary dollar. Now, it's August 31st, 2016 when I'm recording this and they didn't impose a deadline, but I can't imagine it will last forever. 
Go to CaliforniaSlapLaw.com, CaliforniaSlapLaw.com forward slash tentative, because we're talking about tentative rulings here. CaliforniaSlapLaw.com forward slash tentative. Use the coupon code TOPLAWFIRM, all one word, to get a fantastic service for just $1. Now, I'm really happy to be able to offer you that because it will greatly improve your odds of prevailing on any motions. So let's go to the Supreme Court's decision of Baral versus Schnitt. Baral versus Schnitt. On August 1st, 2016, the California Supreme Court issued an opinion on anti-slap law that will likely prove to be the most impactful decision of this decade, at least as to anti-slap law, of course. The Supreme Court used the issues presented by the case of Baral versus Schnitt to finally clear up a split of authority that has existed since at least 2004, namely what to do with mixed causes of action. Now let's set the stage a little by discussing the history of the court's struggles with mixed causes of action. What is the proper way to deal with a cause of action that includes both protected activities that would clearly be subject to an anti-slap motion, as well as unprotected activities that would not be subject to an anti-slap motion? This is really important. Many episodes ago, I discussed the verdict I was hired to appeal, where the complaint alleged infliction of emotional distress based on the fact that the defendants had reported the plaintiffs to the police and had said bad things about them at an HOA meeting and had made crank calls. Well, those first two activities are protected, but the third is not. Now, I had nothing to do with the trial, but in that trial, the judge denied the defendant's anti-slap motion, stating that because the cause of action contained the allegation about the crank phone calls, the anti-slap motion had to be denied. Tragically, when the matter went to trial, the judge refused to give an instruction on privilege versus unprivileged conduct, so the jury was presented with all this conduct and awarded a large amount of damages. They, they based their decision of these damages on the fact that they'd called the police. They based this decision of damages on the fact that they'd said nasty things at an HOA meeting. Those are both clearly protected activities, but it was all part of the mix. So how do you deal with these sorts of situations? How do you deal with these mixed causes of action? Well, the question was first squarely addressed in Man versus Quality Old Time Service, Inc., which we'll refer to as Man. The complaint in Man included causes of action for defamation and trade libel. Some of the factual allegations supporting those counts involved protected activity, and some did not. Well, the Mann Court declared, this is a quote, where a cause of action refers to both protected and unprotected activity, and a plaintiff can show a probability of prevailing on any part of its claim, the cause of action is not meritless and will not be subject to the anti-slap procedure. Stated differently, the Mann Court held that the anti-slap procedure may not be used like a motion to strike under Section 436, eliminating those parts of a cause of action that a plaintiff cannot substantiate. Rather, once a plaintiff shows a probability of prevailing on any part of its claim, the plaintiff has established that its cause of action has some merit, and the entire cause of action stands. Thus, a court need not engage in the time-consuming task of determining whether the plaintiff can substantiate all theories presented within a single cause of action, and need not parse the cause of action so as to leave only those portions it is determined have merit. Thus, the Mann Court concluded that an anti-slap motion must defeat an entire cause of action as it is pleaded in the complaint. It's noted that a defendant has other options for challenging allegations within a count. Going back to quoting the court, for example, the defendant can file a motion to strike a particular claim under Section 436 concurrently with its anti-slap motion, or it can move for summary adjudication of any distinct claim within a cause of action. The court concluded that the defamation count before it survived the special motion to strike because the plaintiff showed a probability of prevailing based solely on its allegations of unprotected activity. 
That became to be known as the man rule, and it encompassed the propositions that an anti-slap motion may not be used to attack particular claims within a cause of action as framed by the plaintiff, and that the plaintiff can defeat the motion by showing a probability of prevailing on any part of the count, including allegations of activity that is not protected by Section 425.16. Now, the error of this reasoning seems self-evident to me, but I felt like I was screaming into the wind as I saw trial courts following this ill-conceived analysis. But I was not alone, and even those courts of appeal which adopted this approach expressed reservations. In the 2010 case of Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics, Inc. versus Happening House Ventures, one justice wrote separately, taking strong exception to the man rule. The following year, the author of that separate opinion in Haight-Ashbury gained a majority and criticized man at length in the case Wallace versus McCubin. The Wallace majority made it clear, in its view, that a plaintiff responding to an anti-slap motion must show the probability of prevailing on alleged claims of protected activity and only those claims. However, even the Wallace court ultimately followed the man rule after reviewing two other decisions from the Supreme Court, Taos versus Loftus and Oasis West Realty versus Goldman. Neither of these cases dealt with mixed claims specifically, but both included discussions on whether an anti-slap motion may challenge particular allegations within causes of action as framed in the complaint. Then, in 2013, came the Court of Appeal decision of Cho versus Chang, which appeared to clarify the issues better than the Supreme Court's efforts. In that case, the Court of Appeal stated that, quote, appellate courts have wrestled with the application of the anti-slap law, close quote, when allegations of protected and unprotected activity are combined. After surveying the divergent case law, the court pointed out that neither Taos, nor Oasis involved a mixed cause of action. It declined to read Oasis as broadly endorsing the man rule. Quote, Instead, the guiding principle in implying the anti-slap statute to a mixed cause of action is that a plaintiff cannot frustrate the purposes of the slap statute through a pleading tactic of combining allegations of protected and unprotected activity under the label of one cause of action. Cho concluded, quote, it would make little sense if the anti-slap law could be defeated by a pleading, such as the one in this case, in which several claims are combined into a single cause of action with some claims alleging protected activity and some not. Striking the entire cause of action would plainly be inconsistent with the purposes of the statute. Striking the claims that invoke protected activity but allowing those alleging non-protected activity to remain would defeat none of them. Doing so is also consonant with the historic effect of a motion to strike, to reach certain kinds of defects in a pleading that are not subject to demur. That is what the trial court did in this case. It makes sense and renders justice to both sides. So back to Baral versus Schnitt. Baral and Schnitt owned and managed a company called IQ Back Office LLC. Things deteriorated between Baral and Schnitt, culminating in a lawsuit with Baral alleging that Schnitt had negotiated the sale of IQ under terms that were great for Schnitt but detrimental to Baral. The complaint included claims for fraud, breach of fiduciary duty, libel, and slander. The defamation claims were based on allegations that Schnitt unilaterally commissioned an accounting firm, Moss Adams, to investigate possible misappropriation of IQ assets. Baral claimed that Schnitt gave false information to the accounting firm and told the firm not to interview Baral, which led to a report that put Baral in a false light. That false report was then provided to potential purchasers and the other owners of IQ. Schnitt responded to the complaint with an anti-slap motion, resulting in the court striking the defamation claims. The Los Angeles Superior Court concluded that because the defamation claims were based on communications in, in a pre-litigation fraud investigation, they were protected by the litigation privilege. 
Now, the case went through some procedural steps that are not important to the analysis, but ultimately, Moral was permitted to file an amended complaint, this time alleging breach of fiduciary duty, constructive fraud, negligent misrepresentation, and a claim for declaratory relief. Baral alleged that Schnitt violated his fiduciary duties by usurping Baral's ownership and management interests so that Schnitt could benefit from the sale of IQ. Schnitt sold a 72.6% interest in IQ based on his representation that he was its sole member and manager and negotiated an employment position and ownership interest for himself without Baral's knowledge or consent. Schnitt also excluded Baral from the accounting firm's audit in an effort to coerce his cooperation in the sale of the business. Now, here is where the important anti-slap issue arose. In conjunction with the first anti-slap motion, the court had already concluded that the audit was part of the pre-litigation fraud investigation and therefore was protected by the litigation privilege. However, in the amended complaint, Baral was more skillful in his pleading and his complaints about the audit, which is a protected activity, were mixed in with allegations of unprotected activities. In his second anti-slap motion, Schnitt sought to strike all references to the audit. He was attempting what I refer to as the scalpel approach, where he was seeking to have the individual allegations stricken. But on that basis, the trial court denied the motion, holding that pursuant to the man rule, an anti-slap motion applies only to entire causes of action as pleaded in the complaint or to the complaint as a whole, but not to isolated allegations within causes of action like the audit claims. Schnitt appealed and the Court of Appeal affirmed the holding and reasoning of the trial court. The Court of Appeal agreed with Schnitt that the allegations concerning the audit arose from protected activity, but it agreed with the trial court that Schnitt's motion improperly sought to excise allegations from mixed causes of action. Schnitt conceded that Baral could make a prima facie case supporting his claims based on the sale of IQ and that only the audit claims were vulnerable to the motion to strike. The Court of Appeal therefore concluded that the anti-slap relief was not available because none of the causes of action enumerated in the amended complaint would be eliminated if the allegations of the protected activity were stricken. They looked at it and said, yeah, there's some stuff in there that's protected, but even if we strike it, it doesn't do away with the cause of action, and under the man rule, we can't do that. Now, the Court of Appeal recognized a split of authority in appeal cases dealing with mixed causes of action. It cited with those holding that Section 425.16 applies to such causes of action in their entirety and may not be used to strike particular allegations within them. So Schnitt petitioned the Supreme Court, which agreed to accept the appeal in order to deal with the split of authority. After summarizing the case decisions that led to the split of authority on how to deal with mixed causes of action, the Supreme Court adopted a very simple approach. In essence, the Supreme Court concluded that courts were forgetting the motion to strike language of the special motion to strike and were taking a too literal approach to the meaning of cause of action. A motion to strike can be used to remove any improper matters and allegations from a complaint, such as an improper request for punitive damages or attorney's fees. The legislature was no doubt aware of how motions to strike work when it drafted the special motion to strike procedure, the Supreme Court reasoned. There is no reason to conclude that allowing an anti-slap motion to strike individual allegations of protected activity would be in contravention of the legislature's intent. As to the use of section 425.16 of the term cause of action, the scope of that term is evident from its statutory context. When the legislature declared that a cause of action arising from activity furthering the rights of petition or free speech may be stricken unless the plaintiff establishes a probability of prevailing, it had in mind allegations of protected activity 
that are asserted as grounds for relief. The targeted claim must amount to a cause of action in the sense that it is alleged to justify a remedy. By referring to a cause of action against a person arising from any act of that person in furtherance of the protected rights of petition and speech, the legislature indicated that particular alleged acts giving rise to a claim for relief may be the object of an anti-slap motion. For these reasons, the Supreme Court reversed and remanded the denial of the anti-slap motion, and in an effort to avoid further confusion on the mixed cause of action issue, it took the unusual step of explaining how the analysis will play out in further cases. Here's what it said. For the benefit of litigants and courts involved in this sometimes difficult area of pretrial procedure, we provide a brief summary of the showings and findings required by Section 425.16b. At the first step, the moving defendant bears the burden of identifying all allegations of protected activity and the claims for relief supported by them. When relief is sought based on allegations of both protected and unprotected activity, the unprotected activity is disregarded at this stage. If the court determines that relief is sought based on allegations arising from activity protected by the statute, the second step is reached. There, the burden shifts to the plaintiff to demonstrate that each challenged claim based on protected activity is legally sufficient and factually substantiated. The court, without resolving evidentiary conflicts, must determine whether the plaintiff's showing if accepted by the trier of fact, would be sufficient to sustain a favorable judgment. If not, the claim is stricken. Allegations of protected activity supporting the stricken claim are eliminated from the complaint unless they also support a distinct claim on which the plaintiff has shown a probability of prevailing. Ding dong, dong king man, man is, gone. is gone. They didn't say that, I made that up. Although the Supreme Court did not go into this level of detail, in my opinion, a special motion to strike where a mixed cause of action is involved should follow the format of a garden variety motion to strike. Specifically, California Rule of Court 3.1322 provides, a notice of motion to strike a portion of a pleading must quote in full the portion sought to be stricken except where the motion seeks to strike the entire paragraph cause of action counter defense. So anyway, if you have individual allegations, you, you have to quote them in a motion to strike. It even specifies that specifications in a notice must be numbered consecutively. So I'm going to make it a practice when I do special motions to strike in the future, where it involves a mixed cause of action, to specify exactly what it is I'm seeking to strike. Here, the Supreme Court sort of made the point I just made and held that the trial court on remand should strike any allegations concerning the audit, because the audit was what was found to be the protected activity. Now, although that may be self-evident, as with any motion to strike, the motion is pointless unless you end up with a complaint devoid of the improper matter. That means there must be an order specifying what allegations are to be stricken and that mandates a notice specifically stating what the defendant is seeking to have stricken. I really think that Baral versus Schnitt is the most important anti-slap case to come down in the past 10 years. It will be great to finally be able to excise allegations of protected activity. Cho versus Chang has given us authority to do so for the past three years, but now we have definitive word from the Supreme Court, so we don't always have to argue against the man rule every time. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone.
So I promised at the top of the show to tell you about our trial victory this week. The trial was actually two months ago, but the judge just issued his statement of decision this week. Now, this was a judge in Norwalk Superior Court. I'm not going to give his name because I try a lot of cases in that courthouse and I don't want to prejudice my clients. But if you have a case there, be sure to contact me before you agree to any trial judges in that particular courthouse. Anyway, the case was a breach of contract case and I represented the defendant. The case was crazy because plaintiff's counsel was one of these guys that's too busy to do the work up front. It was a situation where he thought the case was worth millions and we kept telling him that there was no basis for those damages, uh, but he just wouldn't listen. So the case plotted along, plotted along, plotted along. We were eventually two months from trial when he finally concedes the point. But at that point, everybody put in so much time, there was nothing to keep it from going to trial. Now, plaintiff wanted a jury, but he didn't post the fees. So we successfully moved for a bench trial. So two crazy things occurred with this judge that that I just have to tell you about. Every couple of years, I get a judge who says or does something that's so crazy, I'm, I'm just left speechless. I recently had a judge, I was fighting an in limine motion. And to put things in context, I used the expression, well, Your Honor, we intend to argue to the jury that plaintiff suffered no damages. Well, the judge's face got all screwed up, and he, he looks at me and he says, You don't get to argue to the jury. The parties put on their evidence, and the jury decides. You don't get to argue to the jury. I mean, what do you say to that? Well, actually, Your Honor, uh, there's this part after all the evidence is presented where I get to stand up and argue the case to the jury. It's, it's called closing arguments. You, you might have heard of it. It's just staggering what comes out of judges' mouths sometimes. I think I've told the story here of the retired judge who had been the presiding judge who finally learned for the first time during an arbitration that when someone is suing for fraud, they're permitted to testify to the false representation that defendant had made to them. He said, I was the first to ever explain that to him, and for the prior 30 years, he had always excluded that testimony as hearsay. And then there was the judge who did not understand that I could come to court and attempt to quash a subpoena that had been served on my client, even though my client was not a party to the action. My client had been served with a subpoena that, that basically would have required my client to turn over all its financial records to the, the plaintiff in this other action. So I went to court to quash the subpoena, and the judge said over and over, your client has no standing to be here. He, he's not a party. So I had to get a writ from the Court of Appeal to make the judge understand. So... Back to the current case, plaintiff's counsel did that thing where he gives a really low time estimate for the trial, thinking that somehow shows how strong his case is. My case is so obvious that I could present it to intelligent baboons in just one day. He didn't actually say that, but that was sort of the attitude. So now I thought my defense would take one day, but this is not my first rodeo. So I added an extra day to my time estimate and told the judge, I think it will take two days to put on my defense. So plaintiff's claiming one day, I'm claiming two days. So this is going to be a three-day trial. Then at commencement of trial, one of the strangest things I've ever encountered happens. The plaintiff had served a subpoena on a third-party witness requiring that witness to produce documents for trial. Let's call that Acme Corporation. So Acme failed to produce the documents. This was a classic case where plaintiff's counsel just waited too long, needed some way to get these documents, so they subpoenaed them to be presented at time of trial. So Acme didn't bring the documents, didn't, didn't produce the documents. So counsel for plaintiff brings a motion asking for an order to compel Acme to produce the documents and for a trial continuance until the documents are obtained. The judge turns to me and asks for my response to the motion. Here's what I said. Tell me if you think I said anything wrong. 
Your Honor, it appears the plaintiff properly subpoenaed the documents and ACME should have produced them. However, my clients and witnesses are here, so I'd hate to have the trial continued. I don't really see how these documents are relevant to plaintiff's case, so all I would ask is that if the court is leaning towards continuing the trial until ACME produces the documents, I would ask that the court inquire as to why the documents are relevant. Do you see any problems with that? Well, the judge responds, Well, Mr. Morris, it's not for you to decide what is relevant. Well, yeah, I know that, Your Honor. That's why I said you should ask and decide. And he does this thing where he basically throws himself across the bench and he points two shaking fingers at me and he says, I'm not going to let you gut plaintiff's case before it even begins. That's become a standard joke now at our firm. If we're eating pizza in the conference room and someone asks me to pass the Parmesan cheese, I throw myself across the table and shake my two fingers. I'm not going to let you gut the Parmesan cheese before we even start. So the judge orders us to meet and confer over lunch about these documents that ACME failed to produce. He orders us to meet and confer and says that if we, that if we the defendants, don't provide the documents to plaintiff's counsel, he's going to impose a discovery sanction such as striking our answer and entering a default. So I say to the judge, now you do know that I don't control ACME and have no ability to produce documents on their behalf, don't you? A judge screams back, just follow my order. So we come back from lunch and he's like a different person. I, I think the, the clerk must have explained to him that we aren't ACME. He asks nothing about our meet and confer, but decides to continue the trial a week to see if plaintiff can get the documents from ACME. So we come back the following week and the judge says, well, okay, you've already had one day, so now you have two days left. Go ahead and start your trial. So I'm like, your honor, your hissy fit and continuance does not count as a day. Okay, I didn't use those exact words, but that was my meaning. So he concedes the point and gives us three days, but then the plaintiff ends up taking two and a half days to put on his case. As usual, I'm telling the judge the entire time that plaintiff is way beyond his estimate, and I still better get my two days, but as usual, the judge seems to have no concerns about time until it's my turn. So the judge basically says to me, sorry, I only allotted three days, so you you get four hours to put on your defense. Now, to be totally fair, I'd put on a lot of my case by cross-examination during plaintiff's case in chief, but four hours was rushing it a bit. So later in his statement of decision, he feels compelled to mention that I had asked leading questions. Well, damn right I asked leading questions. You gave me four hours to put on a two-day defense. But then he adds, but plaintiff's counsel did not object to any of the testimony, so it will be considered. Of course plaintiff's counsel didn't object to my leading questions. She wanted the case over too. So anyway, the judge issues a 67-page single-spaced statement of decision and awards plaintiff $800. So technically we lost, but we won because we got much closer to zero than they got to half a million. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. There is no basis for attorney's fees, so that's the judgment. A lot of work for $800. There's, there's reason to believe that plaintiff's counsel was handling the case on a contingency basis, so he has a 40% cut for trial. Uh, if he has a 40% cut for trial, he gets $320. Nah, not a bad three days work. Uh, never a dull moment in trials. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk with you soon.